Welcome to UCLA Extension's Business Insights with Roger Ternaden, where we highlight hot topics and underlying economic trends useful to you. I'm not pleased with the bad news that has hit the financial markets since our prior podcast, but I am happy given that we were able to provide a heads up well before these issues surfaced. And the issues that did surface were largely the ones we identified and discussed in recent months. Let's start with the bond crash. Always remember that as interest rates are going up, bond prices are heading down. This is why we brought to your attention that the Federal Reserve itself is near technical bankruptcy. The many long-term bonds and collateralized mortgage securities they bought when interest rates were near zero are worth generally 20 to 40% less now, given interest rates have substantially increased since they bought. In hindsight, I should have added at the time that anybody or any institution as a strong buyer of these securities would be sitting with a similar large balance sheet loss as the market values would be expected to drop substantially below their purchase prices. Silicon Valley Bank rapidly became the poster child for the serious deterioration of values as well as liquidity. First Republic Bank, which is otherwise a high-quality financial institution, is also falling victim to the same issue. Secondly, I'd like to bring up that there are many more banks that have this problem that, frankly, have been covered up so far by regulations and the regulators. My view is that the problem now is so large that the Federal Reserve will do most anything to try to stem future bank runs, even though the Fed itself may be technically bankrupt using the same rules applied to Silicon Valley Bank, they do have the ability to create endless amounts of new U.S. dollars, unlike the other banks. And if you watch closely, you'll see they are using new tools that allow them to compromise their own stated policies to fight inflation. We'll come back to this point in a minute or two, but for now, there's an additional key aspect I'd like to bring to your attention. Many well-known financial institutions have substantial unrealized losses in their bond portfolios, and Silicon Bank is just one example. Silicon Bank was further hit by a run. So far, that has been limited to a handful of banks, But banks that have not been mentioned so far, SVB Financial Group, for example, has a balance sheet value of $91.3 billion in these stock and bond investments versus only a $76.2 billion market value. With tangible stockholders' equity, SVP Financial Group has $11.8 billion of equity, but this $15.1 billion unrealized loss would quickly eat up all of that equity and place SVP Financial in a bankruptcy position. Additionally, Charles Schwab has $15 billion of unrealized losses versus their stockholders' equity of only $6 billion. Even Bank of Hawaii has an $800 million potential loss. This is in their unrealized losses And in their case, they have equity of $1.1 billion. So technically, not bankruptcy, but taking very much the lion's share of the equity in the unrealized loss category. I'm not making the point that many banks will go under because the Fed will make endless amounts of money available to mitigate against more bank runs. Instead, my point is that the Fed is now moving back to vast amounts of money creation using some new disguises. They are likely to talk about fighting inflation 
but are not going to let the whole economy implode by allowing more bank crises. Today is March 19th, and they meet in a few days. So I don't know what their next action is, but here's my expectation. My expectation is the Fed will raise the discount rate by a quarter of a point and talk tough about how the banking system is not at risk because of their actions to make more liquidity available to the banks. They are basically deciding to lend to problem banks amounts equal to the face value of their bond portfolios, despite the fact that these bond portfolios may be worth only 60, 70, or 80% of the face value. The Fed is postponing any need for these banks to realize the unrealized losses. So they're kicking the can down the road in a big way, in effect hoping that over the next several months that things will get better. Personally, I don't expect things to get better. I do expect the Fed to continue to mitigate issues by pumping more money into the loans of banks that have these issues, and I think many banks do. In addition, we need to be cognizant of other serious problems resulting from the increasing interest rates that they brought on, but also by our own high inflation. As mentioned in prior podcasts, the world's private equity funds and sovereign wealth funds are traditionally large buyers of stocks and bonds. The bond and stock market of last year is impacting these large investment pools because many of them are sitting also with large unrealized losses. Here are a few specifics. Tiger Global. Tiger Global is the first private equity fund that I'm aware of that has actually written down their unrealized losses. As you can imagine, as the bond prices have gone down, stock prices have gone down from last year, the private equity firms and the venture capital firms have a lot of unrealized losses on their own balance sheets. But Tiger Global, one of the large ones, did write down venture funds, the values of their venture funds by 33% at the end of 2022. I think it's a matter of time before some of the other funds do the same thing. Additionally, in the sovereign wealth fund area, Saudi Arabia's wealth fund, the largest shareholder of Credit Suisse, refused to participate in a new round of funding to save this systemically important major Swiss bank. As of this recording, one of the Credit Suisse's major competitors, UBS, Union Bank of Switzerland, has agreed to take over Credit Suisse with reports of large financial guarantees to be given by the Swiss Central Bank. In the past, the Fed has been known to also backstop large European banks. So I'm thinking they're doing this once again. I'm suspecting they're also involved in guarantees that relate to the Credit Suisse's takeover. Overall, there's something ironic about a technically bankrupt central bank like the Fed casting a lifeline to a bankrupt global Swiss bank. On the other hand, this is serious business. As the international financial system has to quickly adjust to a high interest rate environment from one that was encouraging stock and bond investments for over a decade when money was virtually close to zero in terms of interest rates. There's another elephant in the room everyone in finance is too worried to publicly discuss because an issue here could be bigger than the issues we've seen so far. And that issue is the many tens of trillions of dollars of interest rate and currency derivatives. This is really an advanced topic and it's beyond our ability to cover in a bi-weekly podcast, but get prepared for a near future major event in this domain, as our U.S. and European global banks have put in place many guarantees 
and hedges during all these years of low interest rates, with new risks now on these transactions emanating from the high interest rate environment. But let's go back to the private equity companies. Over the past 15 years, private equity companies have maintained negative cash balances of between $100 and $300 million. The net cash balance is defined as their aggregate cash minus the total debt. In the past year and a half, their negative net cash balances have dropped like a rock, basically, from about $300 billion to $700 billion. The private equity companies, as far as I can determine, also have not written down or marked to market their investments in IPOs that they've made or investments that they've made in startups, as one would expect these companies to be involved in. But if we look at some of the largest firms, we can get an idea of some of the risks that have yet to be factored into the market. Consider that BlackRock owns approximately 10% of all United States stocks, and its sister company Blackstone owns and controls many real estate investment trusts. And I should mention that Blackstone, for the past couple of months, has been denying redemptions of their large real estate funds. In other words, they lack the liquidity to buy back the interests or the shares that major investors have made in their funds. Blackstone, as a major owner of commercial real estate, I would imagine has a lot of day-to-day and future issues of maintaining liquidity, much less facing a lot of redemptions from their clients that they're unwilling or unable to make. Many large private equity firms are facing liquidity issues and will suffer mightily as stocks, bonds, and commercial real estate continue to decline. For example, to give you an idea of how leveraged some of these firms are, Blackstone has all of their assets. They have 31% of their total assets in terms of of long-term debt. KKR, Kohlberg Kravis has 23.8%. That's a lot of debt to be servicing, paying the interest and principal on when the assets themselves are illiquid and declining in value. Evidence is mounted now at the Federal Reserve that they are trapped. They're having to buy instead of sell parts of their portfolio in order to keep the banks liquid. As many of you know, over the past six months or so, the Fed has embarked on a policy of quantitative tightening or they've admitted to make sales from their balance sheet of their bonds and securitized mortgage obligations. At their peak, they had about $9 trillion on their balance sheet, of balance sheet assets. And by actually selling small parts of their portfolio over the months, that has declined to $8.4 trillion dollars. In the past three to four weeks, that $8.4 trillion is back to about $8.7 trillion. So almost a half a trillion dollars has changed the trend of the Fed selling securities and lightening their portfolio to actually going back into buying them again, as they did from the 08-09 great financial crisis and even in recent years. Additional pressure for the Fed will come from the U.S. Treasury as it has to sell new debt in order to keep the government itself liquid. The U.S. Treasury, back in June of 2022, had approximately $1 trillion in cash balances. And since that time, all the way down to this month, March, 
their cash balances have dropped steadily down to approximately $200 billion. And that's really telling me that the U.S. Treasury itself is going to have to be raising new money soon, as well as raising money to refinance the debt that they're rolling over. And they will be rolling over considerable amounts of debt, debt that is coming due that has to be refinanced. So I think you're going to be seeing over the next month or two some very large treasury auctions, which will put, again, a lot of pressure on the Fed because the Fed has been the primary buyer of government securities. So not only is the Fed going to be faced with pressure to buy new government debt from the U.S. Treasury, but to roll over debt. And that is going to be indicating that the Federal Reserve activities, as much as they talk tough about fighting inflation, they are sort of redirecting their efforts to pumping new money back into the economy. So inflation is not coming down anywhere near the Fed's 2% target. The 2% target itself is understated because the official government statistics, as we've covered in many of our podcasts, grossly understate the reported inflation by substantial amounts. And I've mentioned in prior periods about housing costs being taken out of the consumer price index decades ago. I have also mentioned that hedonic adjustments are made in the consumer price index. And I encourage you again to look up hedonic adjustments, Bureau of Labor Statistics, where prices of goods and services that go up substantially are adjusted so they ultimately don't go up that much. And that has been a part of the process for many decades. Inflation by parties who measure consistent market baskets of goods and services have inflation running two to three times the official target or the official experience of the CPI. So even a 2% target by the Fed would probably be in reality a 4 to 6% target, but we're nowhere near that. And I doubt that we're going to be near that over the next year or two. Additionally, a pressure for the Fed is increasing, again, the personal consumption expenditures. And this is the index that the Fed reportedly looks at, importantly, the most. It went from a 5% year-over-year change down to about a 2% in February. But now in March, we're back up to 5%. So this is not reported in the media, but we're not only not having further declines in pricing, but prices are actually starting to head up again. How will all the above impact the stock and bond markets from here? In my view, we are now close to the next leg down, which could take stocks and bonds down another 20% by year end, quite possibly before the end of the summer. Even global advisors and economists are dialing in an official recession this year and into 2024. If we look at some of the indicators that have really been consistent, an indicator that has been quite strong in predicting recessions has been yield curve inversions. I've mentioned this in prior podcasts. This indicator correctly anticipated the 73-74 inflationary bust, the double dip recession back around 1980, the S&L crisis in 1990, the technology stock bust of 2000-2001, the housing bust of 2007-2008, the COVID recession of 2020, And now the indicators are highly predicting, or in my view, the yield curve inversion has a very high number comparative to some of the larger numbers reached during the prior forecasts that I just 
covered. We are getting close to a high again of the yield curve inversion, and that is anticipating a strong recession. I think we're in a recession, but the definition of recession is different than utilizing real inflation numbers versus the consumer price index that's manipulated. So I think even with the manipulated consumer price index, we're going to be officially in a recession, certainly by year end. The Philadelphia Fed business outlook, again, correctly anticipated the 70s recession, the stagflationary recession, mid-70s, the double-dip recession in the 1980 period, the SNL crisis, the technology stock bust, the global financial crisis, and the pandemic crisis. And this index is also flashing recession. With all the risks, stocks are still highly priced, and the bond market is not reflecting a 4 or 5% or higher inflationary environment. In total, there is substantial downside risk ahead. And you could look at all kinds of stock ratios. You can look at the 10 largest stocks in the United States, their earnings yield. You can see that we are going back toward a, a very negative part of the 10 largest stocks in the S&P index. You can look at price earnings ratios across pretty much all the stocks. We are not in a low price or even a reasonably priced stock environment, in my view. And if you begin to agree after our podcasts and our heads up that we can anticipate long-term trends by looking at specific economic and financial data, I'll have a smile on my face this weekend. It is our main objective to assist in preparation for major future threats and opportunities. For now, it's very reasonable and prudent to build up cash reserves and avoid new stock and bond investments. In a year or two, there might be a wonderful buying opportunity to invest in recovery, but that would be assuming that we avoid major military conflicts with Russia or China. For now, the U.S. government debt to GDP is at record highs. The government's having to refinance much, much more in an environment when China, as an example, is reducing its holdings. Several years ago, China used to be a major buyer. They held well over a trillion dollars of United States government notes and bonds. And now, in recent months, they've been selling that at the rate of 40 to 50 billion a month. They're down close to $800 billion in holdings. And we can expect they're not only going to be a major, they're not going to be a major buyer anymore they may become a major seller, which is going to put even more pressure on the Fed to create money to buy the U.S. debt. We know the U.S. Standard & Poor's 500 cyclically adjusted price earnings ratio is getting close to record highs despite all the issues. We know the consumer price index is high and is very reluctant to go below where it's been the past month or so. So all in all, be careful, maintain risk adversity, accumulate cash, and wait for a much better time to make investments in stocks, bonds, and real estate. Until the next podcast, take care. Be sure to email us at rtornadin at uclaextension.edu on more specific questions, which we will answer either personally or select as part of our future podcast. Hosted by Business and Legal Programs Director, Roger Tornadin. This podcast is presented by UCLA Extension and produced by Jamie Moss at Studio 10960. 
These podcasts are made for educational purposes and are not financial advice. The goal is to educate and provide resources on focused economic and job trends with the latest support research so that you can make more informed financial and career decisions that best suit your personal needs. UCLA Extension offers more than 5,000 online and in-classroom courses taught by over 2,000 leading practitioners to help you get from here to there. For more information on this podcast or our financial and legal programs, please check us out at www.uclaextension.edu. We know it's about your life, not just your money.